27th Precinct podcast, and it's our birthday. We've been doing this for about a year now. Amazing. One year old. Yeah, One and year. somehow having done a book a month for 12 months, we've only done 10 books. That's a lot. I'm not entirely yeah. sure how that's happened. <laughs> well, we are only about to do our 10th book. Hmm. Well... We must that have, can't be correct. We, we did no. do like a sort of double episode at the start, at least, didn't we? We did. Yes, we did. We did spread it out a little bit earlier on. And, you know, time does catch up with you sometimes, hence this being a little later in the month than normal. But we are about to get into book number 10, the last book from the 1950s, 1959's King's Ransom by Ed McBain. It occupies a bit of a special place in the McBain ad because it's been adapted so often. It's very well thought of. We will probably talk about adaptations and TV things in our bonus episode, so we will try and focus in on this rather exciting book for this part. I am joined, as usual, by Mr. Morgan Brown. Hello. Mr. Stephen Royston. Hello. And this is me, Paul, being me. Hello. So, King's Ransom. We've got a new crime to the set of crimes that are in these stories, which is kidnapping. That's the heart of this thing. And a huge moral story, I think, here. But what I'll do to start us off, just to get us in the uh, the mindset of the period. So from the New York Times in uh, December 1959, there was a review of this book. And one or two of the other things... One or two of the other things? <laughs> one or two of the things it says... He starts his paragraph... Praise of a consistently admirable performer must get monotonous and even boring. If you're tired of reading here about McBain... The best remedy is to simply drop this paper and start reading the book itself. <laughs> mm. The book is powerful and compelling, and one looks forward to a dramatic version that might be even more so. Oh, mm. right, well, their so, wish came true. Their wish came true in several sort of strange ways, in mm. fact, but like I say, we'll perhaps save that for the, well, for another podcast as well, and our bonus bit. So, kidnappings, true crime stuff. Most famous kidnappings, what do you reckon? I should have Does, researched this. In, I, in the UK, there was the Black Panther, who, um, uh, what was he called, Dennis Nielsen, Nielsen, who I think had a career of holding up sub-post office masters, um, but then kidnapped somebody and hid her in a, a drain gully in a park, I think, and then it all went terribly wrong and she died. And yeah. I think he always claimed that he'd... Uh, I think, yeah, she, she strangled on something. It looked like she was trying to escape, but it was always, it was never clear whether he had murdered her or whether he looked after her and it was just a terrible accident. Yeah. Um, but that's quite a famous one. I think most often these days, what you hear about is incarceration rather than kidnapping. Mm. Kidnapping obviously suggests a ransom mm. and an attempt to extort money. Absolutely. Whereas a lot of the stories you hear about people being held captive tends to be for more. Uh, well, terrifying reasons, yeah, really, yeah. like the, the Fritzl case and things definitely. like that. Incarceration or abduction, but not so much kidnapping that you hear about these days, definitely. But there was a time, and obviously it still goes mm. on, but there was a time when it, kidnapping was quite, uh, I don't hesitate to use the word popular, but a well-known and, and sort of high-profile high kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've picked out a couple of, of cases of real kidnappings to, to mention here, one of which I think might have had a little bit of influence on this book. One of the most famous ones is Patty Hearst. Mm. Oh, I was going to say, was she kidnapped by some left-wing organisation? She, she was, yeah, the S- SLA, who's... I've forgotten what the acronym stands for now. 
But yeah, a left-wing revolutionary group mm. in, in 1974. And of course, she was the granddaughter of William Randolph Hearst. Yeah. Who was the model for Citizen Kane, wasn't he? Yes, that's right, yeah. Didn't she? Didn't yeah? Didn't she commit some crime? Like she's involved in holding up a bank or well, something. Well, she's famous because she's the um, poster girl for Stockholm syndrome. Yes. Isn't yeah, she? that's the one. In that yeah, they yeah. sort of indoctrinated her into their organisation, and she appeared to have been brainwashed and become sympathetic to them. And then she herself was arrested for carrying out a bank robbery. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. For the organisation, and um, in fact, she was the only person tried, I think, out of huh. the people that were captured for that. The ransom for that was a demand that $70 of food was to be distributed to every needy Californian. So this is what really weird kidnapping, Mm. because the motive was a social one. Mm. But when her father arranged for $2 million worth of food to be handed out around the Bay Area, it just went went to shit, let's put it uh, (laughs) bluntly. Because if someone turns up and goes, here's a load of free food... You tend to get crowds and riots, uh, and it all went wrong. Oh, right. And then later on, they managed to distribute a bit more, but still, they didn't release her. Right. But obviously, what happened then was she kind of bought into it anyway. She ended up, yeah, brainwashed or whatever it was, and uh, then spent a very strange rest of her life, sort of appearing in John Waters films and the like, mm. all sorts of weird things. But she was very famous, very high-profile kidnapping yeah. case, but certainly not the largest ransom. I think one of the largest ransoms, uh, certainly at the time, was when Victor Lee was kidnapped in and had a ransom of one billion Hong Kong dollars. Mm. He was captured in 1996 by a Chinese gangster who went by the name of Big Spender. <laughs> wow. You'd think that was a joke. I mean, really. Had he seen, wasn't there a TV programme called Spender? Yeah, there wasn't one called Big Spender about her. Was it Jimmy Nail? Was he Spender? That's right, yeah. <laughs> Perhaps he was a big fan of Spender. Yeah. But the translation, the word fan, got missed out. <laughs> That's a hell of a motive. To... Me, big fan of Spender. Oh, blimey. But, no, Big Spender the, was like a proper kingpin of this, this crime organisation and mm. kidnapped quite a few businessmen and... After he'd kidnapped uh, Victor Lee, he was uh, captured not long after and executed by shooting. Oh, gosh. So he met his uh, end in a dramatic way. Oh. But the one that is, well, perhaps the most depressing out of all of these ones, <laughs> but the one I think that might have a bit of influence on this mm. book. In 1953, so that's pre the novel, obviously, yeah. mm-hmm. there was a kid called Bobby Greenlease Jr. The ransom was $600,000. And that was the largest they'd ever been Uh at the time. He was a six-year-old son of one of the richest men in Kansas. He was taken from school by someone pretending to be his auntie. Which, I mean, even when we were school kids and, you know, say no to strangers and Uh all that sort of stuff, it was about people turning up saying, oh, I'm going to collect you from school. This is the real world, most sort of extreme version of that. And they demanded this ransom, but they'd already killed him. So it's a, a horrible story. But, of course, what happens is they get caught because they go off and go, well, we've got loads of money, let's spend it really obviously all over the place. They were big spenders, were they? They were big spenders, but they weren't big spenders. (laughs) It was Carl Carl Austin Hall and Bonnie Brown Heddy were caught days later after attracting attention through free spending. And they confessed. 
but most of the money had been spent or gone missing. So there was a, a bit of a mystery as well as where most of the money got Gosh. to. Mm. I think that's possibly a bit of an influence uh, on yeah, this. Yeah, you'd imagine that would still be sort of in the public consciousness to some extent when he's writing this. And Definitely. 50, yeah. In this book, we've got a kid called Bobby who mm. is the intended victim of a kidnapping of a businessman's, you know, he's a businessman's son. Yeah. But it all goes a bit south, doesn't it? Somewhat. I am going to say that <clears throat> with this book, I think McBain gets more literary. I think mm. I think he really gets beyond the accusation of being a pulp author and starts becoming something really, really, really good. I think so. With yeah. this, really deals with the morals of the story really well. The crime doesn't even open the book mm. in this one. We have two chapters or something of, or certainly a chapter of, a business deal. This weird. Who's going to throw in with whom? Who's going to make this money? And it's he's the he works for a shoe company, extremely concerned with shoe quality. Mm, oh, he, yes. he's, yeah, he's very um, yeah, he's very concerned with that. But yeah, the first few chapters are getting in the head of this, the psyche of this business magnate, uber capitalist industrialist. Mm. Yeah, he's clearly rich. A lot of the the books describing the trappings of the places mm. he's the, the place he lives, what is families like what the background to him coming he's sort of rags to riches to some mm. extent so he is that american dream yeah thing but yeah and he, he has no respect for anyone who's not done followed the same trajectory as him really yeah. mm. such as his chauffeur exactly and his, mm. his chauffeur is, is portrayed as someone who's been sort of cowed by life who's a bit sort of going along a bit for weedy the... really yeah, yeah just kind of on a day-to-day basis, let alone when it turns out that it's his son who's kidnapped instead. You know, that does knock him for six a little bit. As you'd imagine it would, really. I'd have thought so. What I really like about this is that Corella is the main investigating officer at the scene. I mean, there's lots of cops, but Corella really butts butts heads with um, Douglas King, who is the guy at the shoe company. And it's a really good bit for McBain to look at how people act when they've got money. He sort of has this thing with Corella who gets really nervous in situations involving children mm. and situations involving rich people. Mm. And so to go to the kidnapping of, of a, a child associated with a rich person is Corella's worst nightmare in a way as a cop. And he's clearly on edge and this guy's really rude to him. So he gives back as good as he gets. <laughs> It's, it's similar out. He acted in the uh, the previous uh, book where he goes to the um, the like the ghosty house with the rich family and the butler. I can't remember which book that was now. But yes, he's like yeah. similarly kind of a bit killer's wedge. Yeah, killer's yes, wedge is a bit similarly kind of ill at ease in that kind of environment. And it's yeah. the, the other really posh part of the precinct, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. And it it always gives. Um, uh, McBain a little little bit of a chance to kind of just work in a bit of kind of uh, class commentary, doesn't it? Which is 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 always it's very a touchstone of the series, really, yeah, as it definitely. goes along. Mm. There's a lot of very good uh, description in this book of the different areas of the city mm. and how he starts to get more and more into the history of how those places have come up. So mm. we don't just say he drove down that road, he lived in that area. We start hearing about how the historical background to these things, which I presume has some parallel with New York yeah. in terms of, you know, this is a farming area that was eventually sold off, this, that and the other. But he starts to put actual 
stories into that, and that's wow. really interesting and builds up this amazing picture of the wow. city. Yeah, he, he describes in detail how it changes if you drive along the road from this area and then you pass wow. through this this neighbourhood and then the following neighbourhood and all the way back to the precinct station, yeah. doesn't he? It's quite a good little passage, really. Yeah, um, but it's, it's great. It's it's not just describing sort of a little backdrop for some crimes to take place. It's actually like a whole kind of socio-economic kind of portrait of, a, of an entire area, which is it's pretty amazing, really. And it's a, to be able to do that kind of progressively over that many novels, I think, is, is quite an achievement, really. It is. And talking about socio-economic, I mean, the next era really where the rich and poor thing becomes such a big thing is the 1980s in the 1980s in the uk we were watching the bill we were (laughs) or as it turns out in 2017 some of us are watching the bill again from the start and i watched an episode the other day as did you steve-o i did called paper chase series four episode 34 should you wish to play along at home (laughs) which features someone whose child is abducted and there's a rich huge, guy, a very yeah, the child of a, of a rich man, rather than his chauffeur. And there's a large ransom, and he, his first instinct is, oh, I don't want to get the police involved, like the character in this book doesn't want to, because he's a big businessman, and it's all you know this that, and the other. But he receives his instructions to go and drop off the ransom on a car phone, and the car phone is the technology that's introduced in this book as the means by where the kidnappers are trying to direct the money. So I'm convinced that whoever wrote that episode of The Bill has definitely read King's Ransom. Well, I'd imagine because so. I would just like them to have. It's weird because you consider a car phone cutting-edge te- cutting technology in the 1980s. Yeah, I would have thought that was a novelty 1959 in 1959 is pretty... I suppose it's like a radio, isn't it? It's a radio it's a telephone. Yeah. Radio telephone. I think car but, phones were first introduced in the 40s in some respect, hmm. but obviously not commonly. Well, they would have had them in the Second World War, wouldn't they? Like field yeah, radio. Like technology field existed. Yeah. As usual, the war responsible for a lot of peacetime advancements. Absolutely. Um, so if you could afford it and you need to be making deals on the move, I'm sure that'd be something you'd be interested in. Yeah, I bet it would. Buying or selling shoes, maybe. Well, well absolutely. Or Make stocks, it a power grab. Stocks and shares in shoes. Yep. Trying to convince someone to sell out someone else yeah. to do this, that, and the other. You need to stab someone in the back on the move. Because yeah. uh... it starts, he's he's well into his shoes, isn't he, Mr. King? And there's a very destruction of a shoe when he like snaps the heel off to show it's... Uh, poor quality. Poor shoe quality, work. yeah. He's, he's sort of king of cobblers. He is <laughs> the king of. There's a yeah, absolutely. He's... Well, I can never get my head round. It's always a bit contradictory of whether Granger shoes make good shoes or bad shoes. It's like I suppose it, it, everyone uh, seems to have their well, own they opinion. Make a profit, and I think that's they, important. Yeah, I think they've they've got a good name for making solid, dependable shoes, shoes, and perhaps like Clark um, shoes. There's a, a faction of the board who feel like they should be going for something snazzy shoes, cheap and also flashy. Mm. Whereas he feels like obviously there's more longevity in uh, in a quality um, in in quality absolutely. Yeah. So in in that initial scene, I kind of find myself thinking, well, you know, maybe he's okay. You know, he doesn't want to do this cheap crap. And then as you get beyond that, I kind of find myself thinking, oh, maybe he's not okay. Maybe he's the worst person I've ever encountered in any book. Well, he has his his um, his kind of a personal assistant doesn't he who's, yeah. who's that then trying to stab him in the back and you've got you you end up having a bit of sympathy with 
um, Douglas King. Mm. Uh, but then at the end, you're kind of rooting for his uh, his the double crossing yeah. personal assistant. Yeah, but he's just as bad as him. Just, as you're just... introduced to his his co-workers and his social circle, it's just like such a nest of vipers, isn't yeah. it? Apart from his wife, who's kind of... The only yeah. sort of decent person in there. His wife's mate. Ooh, Ooh what's yeah. her name? I've forgotten. She's terrible. Liz. Liz, is, is she's an absolute horror. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah. Yeah, she's just as ruthless as um, mm. Douglas King. But then she's... Uh, it's, yeah. Have it in off with a personal assistant, isn't she? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of talk about... I think McBain, at this point, it still hasn't quite worked out how to write women... Particularly mm. effectively, I do think it improves. But he's trying to—he's trying to cast a certain type of spoilt character, mm. and, and the worst type is Liz Bellew, is her surname, yes. or Bellew, depending on how you pronounce it. Mm. Who is just just floats through life with a, a rich husband doing what she likes. Mm. She oozes S E X, I think, is how yes. he describes. Yes, uh, indeed. Small exotic xylophones. Yep, I believe that stands for. It's all it. Could do really, yeah. <laughs> Seriously exciting X-rays. <laughs> There's not many words with X. No matter how old you get, if you have to do an alphabet, you get to X. It's xylophones or X-rays. Other than that, you run out of words very quickly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but she's a character type that crops up in a lot of crime fiction and drama. Mm. You see that character type in Columbo quite a lot yeah. as an incidental character, and occasionally as the main character. Mm. Mm. Uh, Faye Dunaway, she's yes in, in one of the eighties ones. Yeah, she's that sort of rich woman who's got time on her hands as well as being self-made to some extent. Although that's the, perhaps the difference between the eighties and the fifties. Who then teases Columbo? Well, then she actually, very good Columbo. But, uh, but then I think you get you get the feeling that she does actually start uh, falling for him a little well, bit. Well, you would, wouldn't you? <laughs> With his rumpled charm. While we're talking about characters. Steve, I, I feel I need to hand over to you what? to talk about the introduction of one of your absolute favourite characters. We've finally reached oh, the yes. point oh, where yes. he makes his appearance. Well, yeah, we I think we mentioned him uh, last month or the month before because he was on a rotor, wasn't he? He, he crops up on the juicy up, roster, doesn't he? Yeah. The name of Andy Parker, and he's, oh. his name crops up. And he's involved in this. He makes his first appearance, doesn't he? Um, doesn't really do a great lot, but he's it's immediate classic Parker in that he just spends his time winding everyone up and generally being not very helpful yeah. and generally <laughs> grumbling getting in the way yeah so he's 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 kind of um introduced here and he's he's pretty much the same character doesn't really describe him in this i don't think as much of a slob but you generally led to believe yeah, his slob-like only... traits are more hammered home later, I think. Mm. We only really see him out of the office in this one, save yeah. for a, a brief bit at the end. So but he... he turns up with Cotton Hawes, who has been rehabilitated as like the sort of nice hero cop, yeah. rather than the, the sort of mini correct. Well, not dirty mini because he's he was bigger, early. but like yeah, his Corella version. Yeah, he's taken ver- Mark II almost, isn't he? Mm. Yeah, he's moved towards that. So he turns up with Andy Parker, who's moaning about the weather because this is set in. On a cold October day. It's a cold October day here, but I think this is a little bit colder by the sounds of it. This one. He's, uh, and yeah, Andy Parker's very. Um, well, he's been around the block many a time, and he just thinks a lot of the things that they do in are just a total waste of time, doesn't mm. he? Quite often he's correct, but he's wrong in this one because they get a very good lead from the perseverance of the the um, 
the lab, the scene of crime, crimes guy. Right. Who is get... also a character that's appeared before that yeah. Cotton Hawes had a sort of mm-hmm. running oh, with yeah. like sarcastic approach before. There's a couple of recurring characters in this from earlier books mm. that you perhaps wouldn't expect. One is Peter Kronig, who is the lab technician who gets finds the... a paint scraping so they can identify the ah, yeah, agent make of car that Some they're very searching. Good, very good lab work in this. Yeah, one, I think. There is, yeah. but there is also from the very first book. Cliff Savage, the reporter, oh, yeah. turns course, up very yeah. briefly to try and get the scoop. Oh, that's right. And yeah. they are not keen on him still. No. I think this is also the first book where he really starts looking back on the series because mm. there's two or three occasions in this where they reflect on, remember when that happened, mm. remember when this happened, mm. but not to the extent that it makes it an unreadable book if you've no. not read the other ones. It just gives it more of a life of like yeah. a, a department that's had all sorts happening to it. And uh, yeah, that's, I think it signals his awareness that he's got already got quite a sort of rich kind of um, history that he's built up in these books that he can draw on that that he can mm. use to to create a bigger picture, which is great. So yeah, why invent a new lab technician when you've already got one from uh, who's got, 10 got books some interesting ago. stuff that you can draw on? And yeah, absolutely. But yeah, Andy, I suppose Andy Parker in this is the first new detective uh, for a little while, I would say now. He's certainly uh, the, the newest one who's going to make a big impact mm, in the story and going forward. I'm trying to find something now in this, but uh, I'm don't wait for me because I might be going um in an hour in. But there was a the sound of the papers <laughs> turning, rifling pages. But when the when there's a lot of telephone calls to the precinct, I'm trying to find it. Oh I've, yes, I've, that's a good scene. I, 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 I've ah, seen chapter seven, I think. Yeah, there's. Uh, Willis, obviously, and then there's another name, the the third one there. Obviously, d- we've had Detective Brown's been it. Um, Hernandez is mentioned for the first there's time. Detectives DeMeo, Hernandez, oh. and we get Merchinson, Frick, and someone at HQ as well. But Hernandez certainly becomes a prominent detective in some of the 60s ones, yep. I would say. Absolutely. So, yeah, you can, you know, the, the horizon, a bit like the bill, the cast's getting bigger by the. Uh, by the series, yeah. And so um, yeah, no, Andy Parker's—he's not a very nice guy, but as characters go, I think he's quite interesting because he's certainly is. Yeah, if you just had a cast of morally spot-on yeah. guys, it gets a bit boring. Really. Oh yeah, and probably very unrealistic as well. Yeah. Indeed, they, they they can't be an entire precinct full of uh, knights in training armor, can they? That no. would. So you've got a bit of a slobbish idiot. Yeah. And that's amazing because eventually, though, he's so part of the squad that they, he introduces another character who's in many ways worse. Yeah. <laughs> but we are going to be a long way off, I think, before we start meeting characters from other squads who are this is true who are so important. And he starts worse than Parker, and he's mates with Parker, but then he ends up. Yes. Yeah, he becomes a reformed character, doesn't he? Absolutely. Good old Fat Ollie, which we'll yeah. talk about in we'll, the future. I yeah, I look forward to that because he's got an amazing. Um, He's, uh, he's got a very good arc. arc. Is the probably word I'm a good. Not an amazing hark, an amazing R. <laughs> probably about two years away from talking about him in any It'll be a little while. <laughs> the rate we're going. Unless you suddenly accelerate, you never know. Actually, you, you definitely do know, don't you? But the other major thing about this book, and I think you're correct in saying that it's he's getting away and doing something a bit more different, is that you know it is all the way through. There is no who done it mystery. No, that's the, true. The, yeah, the, the big plot twist um, happens right at the beginning in that they've got the wrong boy. 
but yeah, you follow the activity at the police with the, the family, and then you also follow the activity with with the um, the, the trio of of baddies, mm. um, and you know it is all along. But I suppose the big mystery is how they're gonna yeah perhaps, try and get the money. But um, perhaps that's also a, a nod towards a Columbo style of thing where you know right from the mm. off mm. who committed the crime, and yeah. the question is how do you narrow the gap between the police and the the villain? Mm. How does that's that happen? It, yeah, yeah, the tended tension not coming from from a, a mystery it's by no means actually a mystery story they well i suppose as you say the mystery is how it's going to all work out but you but say that about any book but the main feature of the book is <laughs> is uh, like the moral dilemma of paying or not paying and the the rights and wrongs yeah. of the decision he makes absolutely really. and then also sort of the the contrast between sort of uh, the ethics of of the, the guy with the money who has it in his power to just pay some money and save someone's life, and then, um, so like Kathy of the, the the gang who committed the kidnapping, who pretty much has no power and no money, uh, but is in many respects kind of the moral superior of 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 these other characters, and it's it's a really interesting just juxtaposition, I think. It is absolutely, and I think that's why it captures people's imagination. Hmm. I I found um, someone discussing it in a book called, and I find my name. The book is called Mystery Classics on Film: The Adaptation of Sixty Five Novels and Stories by Ron Miller, hmm. and he's got a chapter all about King's Ransom and its adaptation by Kurosawa, which we'll discuss in other arenas. Hmm. But he describes this as one of McBain's all-time best because its characters and theme were almost Shakespearean in stature. Mm. Well, that, that, that's true, I would say. I yeah. think it absolutely is, and the more I thought about it, the more I, I agreed with that as well, because even the incidental players at the start, the other members of the Granger Shoe mm. Company, are yeah. sort of it's a bit like having, you know, the scenes in Shakespeare where he has kings and dukes mm. all sort of plotting and talking about who's yeah. supporting who and who's doing this to whom and where absolutely yeah. and then you have some large figures within the story who represent a particular viewpoint or a particular thing then you have your comic relief who we haven't got onto yet but it's <laughs> a character called adrian score <laughs> and actually the shakespearean thing works very very well as a analogy for this or a, a comparison rather mm. and i think so i think that despite sounding like a quite a grand statement, is probably very, very true. Yeah. And I think that's why these books are so good. Yes. Absolutely. But Adrian Score is, yeah, <laughs> he's one of our comic relief characters, even though he's a shitbag. Yes. <laughs> I think that's the technical term. Adrian Score. Certainly one of the technical terms, yeah. Um, I'm gonna... Imagine him having a really, really weird voice, can't you? Adrian Score. <laughs> Hello, I'm Adrian Score. <laughs> Maybe not that weird. <laughs> You wouldn't get very far with his uh, various shut the door in his face, wouldn't you? <laughs> What's that you're saying? <laughs> I, could, I could do that for hours. Oh, I've entertained myself now. I think I might take Adrian Score to work tomorrow and see oh, how lovely. people feel about him. <laughs> I'm <not laughs> intrigued. I've lost him in my book as well now because I'm, yeah, I'm not yeah. sure about he crops up. My attention has shifted to the sound of me going. Well, yeah, the, he, he turns up, doesn't he? He's a bit of a... Um, we've not come in across him before, though, have we? We haven't, no. No, but the detectives in this uh, yeah, certainly they, have, yeah, and they, they know him to be a, uh, a a trickster. Crops up uh, claiming to have all the answers. Yeah, and he basically he tries to extort some money he, off... He's uh, in chapter... Chapter 7's quite a big uh, chapter. He's in there somewhere. Ah, right, OK. 
he tries to extort money from Mr. King and the police. Um, well, it's part of McBain showing the reality of, of these circumstances. Because he's a high-profile person, this thing's been reported in the press. People know about it. It's ah. a big businessman involved in the case. So Adrian Score represents the reality of the chancer, the people who try and feed off your misery and grief. But what he also does is then he uses that as an opportunity to put this sort of slimy, funny character in uh-huh. there that you you really enjoy the fact when he doesn't get away with mm-hmm. it and the police turn up and sort of go, do you remember us? And he tries his level best to go, I haven't had the uh, you know the pleasure. Yeah. But you just know he has. Yeah. Brilliant. A Mr. Score to see you on business. That, and also he has a telephone engineer who's another one of his um, comedy characters who turns up and walks into this thing with all these heightened emotions, <laughs> all these people going, where's my son and I won't pay the ransom and all this tension. And he walks and he's like, ah, it's fine, your son will be back. He's fine, they'll let go of him. He'll be fine. <laughs> Just like, shut up. <laughs> Do your job. He's worse than Andy Parker in this. <laughs> but he's, you know, he's just doing his job. I don't he know. But, yeah. He means well, doesn't he? Imagine if all telephone engineers were like that. We had our phone repaired the other day, and Lorraine hasn't reported to me whether the guy came in and told us, it'll be fine, you'll get your son back. <laughs> if he did, that would be weird in so many ways. <laughs> it would be a little alarming. It... Feels almost churlish to discuss the plot in too much detail. But one thing I will say, and I keep drawing Columbo conclusions out of this. <laughs> another thing that shows like Columbo do is they hang the story around a technology. Mm. And in this oh, one, do, yeah. it's the car phone in this. But it's also the radio stuff. Mm. Mm. So there's an earlier se- uh, sequence in the book before the whole thing really kicks off and is linked up together. Where Maya Maya is talking to someone who's had his radio store robbed. And the, person, the people have only nicked bits and pieces, very yeah. specific stuff. Mm. And then that ties into something Corella had dealt with earlier. Mm. And again, that's police work. Eventually the dots are joined later on. I like the diagrams in McBain books. And this is the first one that's actually got a literal circuit diagram. Yeah. In. That's, uh, yeah, that's so a good tyre track one, doesn't it? But it does, yeah, yeah, you, you, very you, good you correct diagrams the, in uh, this. I agree that the, uh, the, the circuit diagram of some... Bit of radio equipment is. Um, yeah, that's a bit special. Is that the what he needs to be able to tune in and talk to the car radio? Well, it, yeah, it is. And apparently, Eddie Fulsom's preliminary sketches from the setup had looked like this. I think I'll probably snap that and put it on the Twitter uh-huh. feed. I wonder whether it is an entirely realistic circuit diagram. I haven't done anything with circuit diagrams in a long while, but yeah, well, it looks the, fairly realistic. He does. Yeah, he's got the correct. Uh, Symbolic Earths bits and um, a capacitors and um, yep yeah, switches. Yeah. Six hundred cycles, six hundred. But we'll put it online and see if anyone can have a look <laughs> at it and, and and tell us. But I like I like these things where the technology gets involved hmm. because obviously people do utilize that which is available Naturally, to them yeah. for good and for bad. Yes, and the, their skills they've learnt in their um, their prison. Uh, classes. Yes, they'll stop teaching them these things, really, don't they? Normally in Colombo, it's something like the time that a fax wasn't sent or something, isn't it? Or the fact that you can uh, press 1471 on your telephone and find out who, who somebody called, which is obviously Colombo's totally Oh, brave new world. By, which is a bit like this. It's like, you've got to 
car phone? What? Well, Why I... didn't you tell us that? Well, nobody asked me. Yeah, that's it. They sort of they go to actually make the drop off in order to try and catch these people, and they don't bother to actually say. Why has he asked for that specific car? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then look at the car and put the pieces together and go, oh, there's a phone. That's how they're going to tell yeah, us. Yeah, because the kidnappers insist he gets in this uh-huh. car and just drive away from the estate with, without a clue as to how they're going to get in touch. I, I totally. guess that they've told him in advance that he's going to be watched, which, of course, they're not actually doing. But uh, yes. they, he presumably thinks that, oh, well, they're watching out for that car, so I'll have to take that car. Flagging and they must be like something on the road. hiding somewhere or... Yeah. Yeah. Or tailing them. But, but uh, no, they, they they phone him up. Yeah. They do. And clearly the uh, technology of the car phone is not so perfect that they don't notice when he puts Corella on to answer for him rather than mm. but of course being a book we don't know this <coughs> excuse me. Presumably he didn't have a voice like mine's just gone. <laughs> no, they must have had fairly similar sounding voices. But oh. over a radio over a car phone may have had Low imagine, fidelity. One would imagine That's so in, in in those days. Also, I'm sure Corella's probably a fairly competent mimic, uh, given the opportunity. Yeah, well, I choose to believe. You know, you know, he tried. He'd given it, given it a good go. Oh, I'm sure. As long as Mr. King didn't have a voice like Adrian Score, he'd be <laughs> all right, really. Otherwise, where are we going? Oh dear, sorry. <laughs> Okay, I'm trying to look for some more beats. In- I'll tell you what, actually, in terms of beats in the story, when it gets to them going off to drop off the money, supposedly, mm-hmm. towards the end, it's one big last chapter. All this stuff is... It's not masses of chapters. 14 chapters, this book is. And the last one is everything happens, and all the action happens mm-hmm. in one chapter, basically. There is no other action sequences, no no tracking There's, anyone down and trying anything out in in yeah. random hotels here, there and everywhere, like very often. Lots of, which is not to say that it's not exciting, there's lots of tension. The whole thing is very tense. It is like, tense. Even before the actual action starts, the, this, um, the scenes with King and his associates are, are pretty tense. But then, yeah, it, it, it just slowly builds like a pressure cooker and then it just all goes completely nuts in the last chapter, doesn't it? Yeah. It does, including some nice, what would normally be a chapter on its own, oh, excuse me, now I'm going to correct myself, the last chapter is chapter 14, chapter 13 is the big chapter, ah, right, sorry, yeah. chapter 14 is the concluding chapter which is only a couple of pages long, mm. which is an end piece back in the squad room, this is our post, in terms of TV stuff, this is that little post moment after the big dramatic oh, yeah. conclusion, you have the little, the little, the little um, warm down moment before the credits roll and that's a nice bit of squadron business with some good bounce uh, <laughs> oh, bounce uh, <laughs> top bounce <in laughs> top bounce with Andy, Andy Parker with the lads <laughs> but they're winding up Steve Carella and then Andy Parker's there and Miss Colo's crap coffee is part of it with his coffee is described as an aroma that's assailing the nostrils. So, sounds really nice. And I like those little moments. Yeah, no, they're good. But talking about the language in this book, it's not Shakespearean language. Shakespearean cast of characters, but it's not Shakespearean language. Now... Oh, that was a really long pause. <laughs> what? Was, what on earth are you going to say? I started breathing in and I forgot what I was doing. It's like... 
<laughs> Evan Hunter, Ed McBain, worked for a literary agency. Uh-huh. One of his clients in the US was P.G. Woodhouse. And I think you can hear some P.G. Woodhouse in this book, which seems a strange thing to say because Woodhouse is seen as very of the past. McBain is seen very much going forward from, uh-huh. you know, Woodhouse is releasing books up until the 70s but they're all set in this uh. 1920s 30s sort of world they don't move forwards but they were friends woodhouse and Macbe- uh, and hunter were, were friends and whereas some chapters of this book are real stark noiry pulpy type uh. of things uh, there's a good statement on pe- page 19 in my book which is where it's describing some of the streets South of that was Ainsley Avenue, and the change from riches to rags was subtle here. The buildings still maintaining some of their old dignity, the dignity of a once stylish, now shabby Homburg. And it has naked poverty, naked, nakedly dirty buildings, and it's, it's really grimy and, and dirty and, and visceral. Mm. But then you get one of my favourite things. We've talked about the author's voice before, mm. where he's describing on page 120 in my book about people waking up in the morning mm. and he, he talks about this character George who is just the name he gives to the people who have to get out of the bed yeah. in, out of, out of bed in the morning in the city and it that reads to me a little bit like Woodhouse mm. George it's time to get up and there's a word in this book and the word is M-R-M-M-B-B-B George honey it's time to get up the Georges of the city slip from beneath the blankets and there's there's just touches of Woodhouse in yeah. there, and I like that little sort of comic ex- expression of stuff. It doesn't get too silly, mm. but it's got a lightness of touch where you can sort of tell the same story, a story about the same city mm. in a very visceral way, a very dirty, dark way, or you can sort of talk about the talk about it in a lighter, more funny way. And I think he, I think that's partly down to his uh, appreciation of of people like Woodhouse. Mm. Yeah, quite quite probably, yeah. And seeing as there's no one around to prove me otherwise, I'm definitely well, right. Uh, well, let's, let's say that's absolutely certain. And I've not published it in an academic paper, so nobody can criticise <laughs> <laughs> me. It was it was worthy of a long pause, I've, definitely. Well, got one. I did like, I'm just uh, flicking here and remember the, the, the guy who had had his, uh, his shop nicked. Oh, yeah. It was called Pecker Parts after his... Um, after his name, um, his name's Peck, and his business partner's Irwin. And he says, well, why didn't you just use uh, well, your name? Because obviously Peck Parts is ridiculous, and he tells uh, Mayor that his surname's Lipshits. <laughs> <laughs> Some, uh, a little bit of uh, adult joking around there. <laughs> yeah, Peck Parts and Lipshits. Marvellous. There's still not much of the sort of actual dirty sort of jokes in this in these no, books there's a, a few bits here and there and he says they talk about dirty jokes and you have some of these a few little rude bits and it can pieces be moderately but, risque it's not like two courses, is it really but it does increase as the years go by obviously as the True. expectations of the audience mm, uh, change change or the uh, willingness of what they're reading yeah <laughs> excellent stuff have we got anything else specific to talk about with this one um Trying to think. Oh, trying to, to blow the plot. Well, we certainly really, don't want to blow the plot. Um, but when we were mentioning earlier about um, Corella and his um, relations with rich people who make him uncomfortable, um, 
was just I was trying to find it before. I think I managed to find it now, but I've, I can't actually see it on the page. Uh, it's my, my favourite bit of Cruella getting annoyed with snooty rich people. Okay. Humiliated, Douglas King stared at the door. Does it make you feel like a big turd, Mr. King? Cruella asked. <laughs> like, Straight out of the police handbook, that. Yeah, I was going to say, that mask of professionalism, just slipping a tiny bit there. Yeah. But I, I would have said the same. Because yeah, <laughs> you do not like this character. No, you really don't. Douglas King, you know, hence King's Ransom. Yeah, it's just dawned on me today. <laughs> I've been read it twice. <laughs> McBain titles are a, a, an amazing thing. Cop hater is about as literal as it gets. Mm. King's Ransom is more or less the point at which we start to get what I'd sort of describe as joke titles. Yeah. But they actually work amazingly well. And the next book we're going to do is called Give the Boys a Great Big Hand. (laughs) And that's about (laughs) as jokey as it ever gets. Which is exactly what the book's about. But yeah, some of the early ones, when you have like the payoffs and wedge... Even now, I look at those titles and I can't really remember which one that is. Well, Whereas, Killer's, Killer's Wedge, I'd forgotten until we reread it, but then that's actually like, that's that's one which has a double meaning and it's oh, quite that's the wedge in the door. Yeah, so perhaps that's a yeah, bad yeah. example, but yeah, certainly some of them you look back and you think, oh, I can't remember, but like, give c- the c- boys c- a great big hand or blood relatives or yeah. King's Ransom, you can immediately yeah. remember which Whereas, which one it is. Like Killer's Choice as a title, that could be any book in the series pretty yeah, much, couldn't it? exactly, yeah. I do like the joke titles. I like the way that the titles change over the years. I do like the, the pulpy, direct ones. Mm. I like the jokey period. I like it when he gets to single words mm. as well, which is his is stock in trade from the 80s, really, I think, isn't it? And it just becomes really stark and really hmm. direct. But the jokey titles uh, betray a lot of intelligence and thought hmm. behind them as well. I and mean, they often have two or three layers of yeah. of meaning, not just the obvious joke as well. But I'm sure we'll discuss that in the next podcast we do about the next book. Hmm. Anyway. Yeah, definitely. In terms of anything else, I don't know. I normally just mention the, um, the the sort of descriptions of the, the weather and the time of year, which is a constant mm. feature. Um, it, it's another cracker at the start of this one. Uh, it's it's obviously autumn uh, when we get to this book, and autumn's not not quite sort of pleasant sort of time. The the leaves are turning golden and. But yes. uh, he doesn't Dappled, make it dappled sunlight, etc. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't make it sound quite so pleasant here. It's <laughs> um, yeah, the scene beyond the window was clear with the pristine snappishness of October growing into November. Each orange and gold leaf boldly shrieking its colour against the sky. Too blue, too cold. Ooh, <laughs> gosh, <it's> fan- <laughs> Oof! That's a fantastic description of that Great. type of autumn day. Yeah, as well, which we haven't quite got to, although we are currently going from October into November. And today was quite blue. And quite cold it outside. Was, yeah. Not too blue or too cold, though. No, not not as dramatic as that, certainly. No, indeed. <laughs> all that's happened is that all the leaves that have been blown around in the recent storms and hurricanes have obscured all the curbs of pavements that I've had to drive up to in my driving lessons oh, to God. try and park alongside. Yeah, that's and a bit unfair, isn't it? Stupid leaves. <laughs> <laughs> should be able to get out of the car with a broom and, like... Yeah. <laughs> During your driving test. Yeah. <laughs> We'll just get the instructor to wind the window down. You hold this out the window and I'll just go slowly up here and then we'll reverse back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let's see what happens when I try that in my test. <laughs> anyway, let's let's conclude on this book. 
which everyone should just go and read. I mean, mm. out of all of the ones you don't want to spoil, obviously we we can only do so much, but it is a Shakespearean style wonder. It's it's a, it's a great story. It's a corker. So I think we need to sum up with our police shield awarding ceremony. Have, have you got the oh. the scoring barometer? I can't. Score, the scoreometer. Because yeah, mean, I'm always conscious to know what other ones have been, so I can peg it correctly. Well, I'll get the lengthy printout from Kenneth. Right. Okay. <laughs> and by lengthy, I mean how long you... it takes the Wi-Fi to work on this stupid iPad. <laughs> Kenneth doesn't work on Wi-Fi. Scott. Yeah, oh, gas. And... Yeah. Valves. See if you can read that on this long punch cards. On this long punch counter cards. Can, can I make it bigger? You oh, can, can try. Crikey! Well, I've done something here. Right, till oh crikey, we 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 plummeted with till death. We did right. That was the ridiculous wedding one, wasn't it? It was. It was still really fun. Don't be put off. Well, the highest, the highest is copper turn eighty six, and the lowest is the last one till death, on sixty nine, and then we've got a few seventies and eight, a couple of eighty threes. Some peaks and troughs. Yeah, peaks and troughs, but we're on a severe down path at the moment. Which so, I, you know, I don't think it's a fair representation of um, the, the, the sharpness of that curve. I think once yeah, it, well, once the, the graph expands, it's not. Yeah, we're only done got, ten. No, of course, yeah, no, of course. But it, it uh, looks like it's plummeting. But it, it isn't. Yeah, that's that's well, don't lie. <laughs> that's all I'm saying. But anyway. Who am I to guess whether that downward trend is going to continue with this scoring or not? Well, Probably not. Second guess the, well, I know. You can I know. prove anything with statistics. You can, you can. Okay, well, I'm going to, statistics wise, I'm going to pin Steve out of the spot first to All give right. us a, out of 100 police shields. Yeah, I don't often go first, actually, but now I'm armed with this and I need to just have a little bit of a think. Oh, he's having a think, ladies and gentlemen, and other. Yeah, animals. it is a, a most excellent one. I suppose it's not perfect. In my head, in that, yeah, I would always do like a, you don't know who's done it, um, but, yeah, but the, so I mean, it's, you talk about what it's lacking. It does lack a who done it because you just yeah. know. But, but that, that's just not the kind of book it is. Exactly, though, is ex- exactly. So I, I'm not bringing that too much into my thoughts, but I will give it a very solid, nay excellent ninety police shields. Oh, excellent stuff! I, I would say because. Um, yeah, it, it's got a good cast, a good plot, and yeah, you're getting a lot of people's heads in this book, don't you? You certainly do. Morgan? Uh, yep, um, I, again, I feel like it's it, it's another exciting new direction for the series. I think the sort of social, um, um, societal comment element of it is really interesting. Um, fairly sort of like damning kind of commentary on a, a certain aspect of the American dream as people were probably celebrating a lot in the in the 50s and mm. um, yeah I, I think that still reads really well today so I'm going to give it a very hearty uh, 88 police shields 88 okay I'm in that ballpark certainly I remember this being one of the earlier books I bought in the sequence when I first started reading them and I I'd finally said to myself, well, I'm not going to be able to read them in sequence or read them as mm. I get them. Because once you get them, it's very hard to sort of go, oh, I'll mm. just put you aside until I've bought the other 30 before yeah, this happens. I found it, it impossible. <laughs> exactly. And I remember reading this and being sort of like, well, that's different to the other two or three I've read at this mm. point. But there's something really, you know, it, it, if this was the only story he'd written, 
this would work as a standalone yeah. thing, you know, because of its moral quality and its yeah, definitely, it's uh... the sort of social backbone to it. Notwithstanding some of the modern perspective of how the female characters are written yeah, and that sort of absolutely. stuff, absolutely, yeah, I, uh, I can't deny that. And so I will give it also ninety police shields, Ooh. Ooh. which, which should be an easy sum to do. I think it will be ninety. Well, I think. Well, you know our system of maths. Oh, we were round down, <laughs> we don't we? Round down I, Look, against conventional logic. So yeah, eighty-nine. It's eighty-nine. Well, that police puts, shields. Puts it, uh, Hot it, dog. We have a wiener. <laughs> exactly. We do. But uh, there's plenty. You know, I'm going to score some in this a uh, hundred eventually. You reckon? Well, they're going to be the perfect McBain, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and this is entirely. This is the McBainometer. It's group subjectivity, if but, that's such a thing. What if it turns out the perfect McBain is is like Alice in Jeopardy and it's not in the series at all? <gasps> well, oh no, that's good naturally. But uh... well, it's just something we need to consider at some point is is having a look at a non eighty seventh precinct McBain. Hmm. Have you ever read any of the Matthew Hope? No, I've never no, found I, them I, anywhere. I, I've got, I've got. Um, my old boss gave me quite a few of those, so hmm. I've got them. But yeah, I've, I've never read them. Well, we certainly need to do the Matthew Hope stuff, or at least the crossover one at have some I, point. Have I read Where There's Smoke? I think I might have read that one, which is, I think it's a, is it a private eye? It was called like Benjamin Smoke. Benjamin Smoke. <laughs> I, th- I think it is. I, uh, it sounds ridiculous, but I, I th- yeah, I think it might be called Benjamin Smoke. Well, maybe perhaps we could do something where we all have we all read one different mm. non eighty seventh precinct McBain because I've read a couple of non eighty seventh precinct McBain I've, I've, and uh, bring that to the table. That could oh, be voice yeah. again. I've just remembered something else that have, is of absolutely zero importance, but Go some, for it. something that I know zero in importance this. is meat to our. Wait, you uh, must <laughs> admit that a Christian name Sai is quite rare, and yet this is the second horrible person called Sai we've yes, come and across. They, we never get it as a Sai like short shorthand for Simon or anything. Is it's just Sai Kramer, uh, who was the guy who was machine gunned. There, there, there yeah. may have been a few more in that era. I don't know. There's Sai um, Coleman, the, the Broadway songwriter. In there. oh right, yeah, of course. Uh, I guess there were possibly a few more sort of in. In sort of the broader consciousness, whereas now you wouldn't think of calling mm. character side. But anyway, really, would you? I just remembered yeah, that's, that's interesting. Okie dokie. Right, well. So, as mentioned before, the next book, should you wish to do your revision, is Give the Boys a Great Big Hand. Tremendous. We're going to chat a little bit about our book covers and our viewing of an adaptation of King's Ransom. And there'll be some different podcasts coming up as well. I recorded a spin-off podcast yesterday about an episode of Star Trek. And we're going to look at the film High and Low probably as a separate podcast as well to do it justice. So we'll see you in the bonus episode. And now I will say a goodbye. Goodbye. Fairly well. That was our birthday. Bye. (laughs) 